Well, good morning. My name is Tara George, and I'm the Director of Family Discipleship here at Grace Toronto Church. And wherever you're listening, we're so glad that you could join us this morning. If you're just joining us, welcome. We've been in a sermon series following the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we now find ourselves in Mark chapter 2. And we'll be reading together. This is from God's Word, Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days... It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not hear him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving the spirit that they had thus questioned themselves, within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything Like this. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder, what would make you drop everything you were doing and race across the city of Toronto to go see? What news would be so exciting that you couldn't just go alone? You'd call your buddies together and even carry a paralyzed man with you all along the Gardner Expressway. Would a concert be that good? Or winning the lottery? Or maybe finding a vaccine? How about this? What if you knew that the one thing you've struggled with throughout your adult life, whether that's a disability, sickness, depression, anxiety, infertility, whatever that is for you, what if you heard that this one thing could just disappear because there was a man in town who could take it away? Would you go see him? Well, in this fascinating story, the Gospel of Mark presents us with one such man. He's been teaching things about the kingdom of God, healing diseases, casting out demons, cleansing lepers, and calling people to follow him. And it's creating quite a stir. People want to know this Jesus. They want to hear from him and be healed of their deepest afflictions. And yet in this passage, Jesus pauses and draws our attention to an even deeper affliction, one that is unseen. It is a spiritual affliction of the soul, but make no mistake, it is more destructive, more paralyzing, and more pressing than any other concerns you or I may have this morning. It is the issue of sin and our eternal separation from God forever. And in this passage, Jesus wants to reject any notion that people may have of him as being merely a good teacher or a miracle worker. He invites us to take a closer look at who he is and what he's about in three ways. by looking at the purpose of his ministry, the need for his ministry, and the cost of his ministry. The purpose of his ministry, the need for his ministry, and the cost of his ministry. We'll begin with his purpose. 
Last week, if you joined us, we heard about how Jesus healed a demon-possessed man in a synagogue at a place called Capernaum. Right after this, he heals a woman who is sick. And people are amazed at what they see, and they recognize Jesus to be some kind of great teacher or miracle worker. Mark even claims in chapter 1 that the whole city, or at least very large crowds, are bringing to Jesus people who are sick, who are diseased, so that he may heal them. And he does. Now before we go any further, it seems necessary to address the fact that people are often puzzled by the idea of supernatural miracles, especially of healing. Let me first say that we live in a culture that doesn't often believe in accounts like this. And yet it's curious that in the history of the world, our culture, our little culture, would actually be an outlier. Most cultures around the world, including my own, do recognize the presence of supernatural things. And we would be unwise to so quickly dismiss them. Second, you should know that all seer scholarship recognizes that Jesus was a real historical person who lived and ministered in the first century. Whatever you may believe about this Jesus, it's curious that even his contemporaries and opponents recognize that he do strange and extraordinary things, miraculous things. First century Jewish historian Josephus writes this, that at this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man. He was a doer of startling deeds. There are even rabbinic traditions, for example, that attest to the fact that Jesus was a healer and a miracle worker. They cannot believe in him, but neither can they discredit what they see, and so they call him a sorcerer. Now think about that for a moment. These people living at the time of Jesus aren't sure whether he's good or evil, but no one seems to contest that this man has miraculous power. The gospel accounts themselves make clear that this is not normal, so much so that even Jesus' own disciples can hardly believe what they're seeing. You take all this together and you have a picture of Jesus as a person who does extraordinary, miraculous works of healing, and yet, and yet, this is not his primary purpose. Mark chapter 1 records how Jesus actually leaves the town of Capernaum for a time because everyone is looking for him for healing. And you have to ask why, when someone has such extraordinary power on earth to heal, that they won't want to use it for good, to heal every imaginable affliction and disease imaginable. Wouldn't you? Is Jesus being selfish here? Or is it possible that there is something more important and more necessary for him to do? Jesus says instead in Mark chapter 1 verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that, for that is why I came out. Well, what does he want to preach? Well, the very first words that Jesus proclaims when he begins his ministry are these. The time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus claims that his ministry is not primarily about physical healing and restoration, but about proclaiming the forgiveness of sins offered in the gospel. What is more urgent to Jesus' mind, what is more urgent to him than people's earthly welfare, seems to be their eternal welfare. People need healing of the deepest kind. They need the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's no surprise then that when Jesus returns to Capernaum in our passage that people have been waiting for him. Perhaps there are those who have physical pains, who have diseases and afflictions. You can imagine what they're thinking. Where have you been, Jesus? What have you been doing? Don't you care about my suffering? Don't you see that there are people who need your help? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever experienced something so painful or frustrating in your life that leaves you asking where God is? 
Have you ever felt something so deeply afflicting in your mind and body that you've wondered if God even cares? Perhaps you're in good company with the people of Capernaum who I think long to ask the same questions. And Jesus has a word for you too. Because in our passage, we find Jesus returning to Capernaum and he begins preaching. He's doing the very thing that he says he was sent to do. And just imagine for a moment squeezing into this little Galilean house to hear Jesus. You've come a long way for this. There's barely enough room to stand. And out of the corner of your eye, you look back and you see four men carrying a paralytic on a mat. There's no way they're going to get in here. Well, several moments go by and you hear footsteps on the roof above you. These crazy men begin digging now and dust and dirt is falling everywhere. You look up and there's now a gaping hole in the roof of this house. And these men, these audacious men, begin to lower the paralytic on a mat right in front of Jesus. The sheer audacity of them. You see Jesus look at each of their faces intently. They are hoping for a miracle because they love this man and they've done everything possible to bring him to Jesus. The tension in the room is palpable. Everyone is expecting a miracle. And then Jesus opens his mouth and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that's it. Friends look at each other puzzled. Crowds are scratching their heads. And slowly people begin to murmur. I wonder how many of us would feel disappointed in that moment. (laughs) Forgiveness of sins? No, no, you must not have understood, Jesus. This man wants physical healing. What an awkward situation. This man is now lying in the middle of the room during a sermon. He can't even move himself. There are four guys who just risked it all to get him in there, and now they have to carry him back out. And there is a gaping hole in the roof of this house. Who is going to pay for it? You know, if we're honest, you and I would be very disappointed. Now, clearly, this man wants to walk again. Any fool would know that, but Jesus flips the script. There's something more urgent that needs to be dealt with. What this man needs most is God's forgiveness. And this is the primary purpose of Jesus' ministry, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins offered in the gospel. I think there's many of us here who need to hear that afresh today. God's purpose is not about you living your best life now or giving you all that you need to be happy and healthy in this present moment. That is too small a thing. The purpose of the church, by extension, is not primarily about social justice or activism or service of any kind to hurting people and society. The ministry of Jesus and his church is primarily about proclaiming the gospel and telling people how they might receive the forgiveness of their sins. In fact, were we as a church to do all things well, to serve the city, to excel in the arts, to care for the poor, to create excellent community and host great events, but fail in our proclamation of the gospel, we would no longer be the church. You don't have to look too far in our city to see churches that have gone this way. Grace Toronto, we must not lose sight of the primary purpose of Jesus' ministry, Christian You must not lose sight of the primary purpose of Jesus' ministry. The primary purpose of Jesus' ministry is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and to reconcile sinners to God. And please hear me right. When we say that, we don't believe that the healing, helping, and restoration of people is unimportant. In fact, Jesus will heal and help this man, and we ought to follow his example. 
We are even encouraged in the scriptures to pray and ask for healing. But you must understand that it is only the gospel that brings ultimate healing, full and final healing. It has a priority in the mission of Jesus Christ. And we need this kind of healing. Look with me at our need for Jesus' ministry. Now it's interesting in this passage that Jesus chooses to use this particular moment as an occasion for teaching. How strange. He asks, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Which would you sooner believe? Which would be more impressive? And it's clear that neither of these things are easy to do, but the latter, you understand, is visible to all. If a man who has been paralyzed his whole life suddenly stood up on his own two feet and walked, you would have pretty good reason to believe that a person is who they say they were. In this context, it would be the harder thing to heal this man because you would have to show the evidence. Forgiveness from God, on the other hand, is an invisible reality. No one standing there could verify this claim. And by contrasting these two things, Jesus offers his listeners an outward sign to demonstrate the evidence of an inner reality. He wants you to see that this man's condition goes deeper than the flesh. There's a greater paralysis at work in him. And it exists in all of us too. It is the issue of sin's controlling power, and we have a great need to be rid of it. Now, our culture doesn't tend to think about sin and evil in these terms. In fact, a recent Pew survey found that two-thirds of Canadians say that it is not necessary to believe in God in order to be moral and have good values. 67% of respondents agreed that it was possible by sheer willpower and positive thinking alone to live better lives and be better people. See, for most of us, I think we believe that we're generally good people. But like everyone else, we're prone to sometimes make bad decisions, sometimes say hurtful things, sometimes think evil thoughts. I think we believe at some level that people can be tempted by sin, by things like greed, power, wealth, lust, We see these frequently in our headlines. I think we all sense in part that these things should be resisted. But the Bible argues that we're actually far more helpless than we dare to believe. Not only are we captured by sin, but we grossly underestimate its power over us. You need to know that the power of sin in the Bible, it's it's, it's almost personified. It has a strong grip on us such that we're unable to move towards God or do anything good that he desires. Paul in Romans 6 goes as far to say that people are enslaved to sin. Sin is our master. It shackles us with invisible shackles. We're paralyzed by it. Which means that in the mind of God, you and I have as much hope of living a moral life by our own means as a paralytic has of walking on his own two feet without help. The Bible claims that all of us are paralyzed by sin. We stand guilty and condemned before God. We regularly do things and say things and think things that are offensive to him and hurtful to others. Psalm 7 says this, that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day. Every day as he looks out over the world and sees your sin and mine, as he sees war and racism and greed, murder and oppression of the poor, as he sees corruption and abuse of justice, sex slavery and the trafficking of children. You think you've lost your faith in humanity. God looks at the world and feels indignation every day. And unless you come to him, unless you receive his forgiveness, you are destined to an eternity 
of much greater affliction and suffering for your sins. This is not a popular opinion, I understand, but it is a very serious thing that we have before us. I need to ask you, what if your sin, properly understood, was actually more serious and more deadly than all the host of your other human afflictions and troubles you have this morning? Jesus, speaking of sin in Matthew 18, 8, says this, that it is better for you to enter eternal life crippled or lame rather than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. What a shocking claim that is. How serious must the realm of hell be that it is better for you to remain afflicted in this life and be reconciled to God than to enjoy every ounce of earthly comfort now and be thrown into hell. As you read this story, it's hard to shake the feeling that Jesus sees people differently. When he looks at the span of human history, our present lives and afflictions, however serious they may be, about a speck compared to the eternity that awaits every person. Is it possible that Jesus cares about the bigger, more pressing issue facing you and I? This man needs forgiveness of sins and it is so apparent to Jesus that when he looks at a man who is clearly paralyzed and unable to function, his first thought is that this man needs to be reconciled to God and second, that this man needs to be healed of his affliction. The needs you have, whatever they are, are not unimportant, you understand. But where you would have everything you desired and die an enemy of God, you would die without hope. My friends, you have a greater, more pressing need. Your friends and family have a greater, more pressing need. And I think this paralyzed man understands this. You know, we don't know and we're not told, but more than likely this man has heard something about Jesus before. Commentators agree that when the text says that Jesus saw their faith, it includes also the faith of the paralytic, not just the friends. Now, he doesn't appear to say a word in the passage, but Jesus knows his heart. The same Jesus who discerns the thoughts of his opponents discerns that this man has faith in him. He has faith not only that Jesus has the power to make him well, but that in Jesus, somehow, somehow, there's forgiveness of his sins. I think this man understands that he is paralyzed at the heart, and he's not alone. Some of you may remember a man named Christopher Reeve who played Superman in the franchise from 1978 to 1987. I remember growing up and watching these films years later as a child. I still remember the day when my mother explained to me that Christopher Reeve, the childhood superhero that I loved and I watched so often, had actually been thrown off a horse in May of 1995 and was now paralyzed from the shoulders down. It was shocking news to me. Newspaper headlines that year read, Man of Steel, Now Paralyzed. There's a sobering thought to people that an icon, a man who could lift buses and take bullets and shoot lasers from his eyes, would suddenly find himself without the strength to move his own body. It was a sobering thought. Unfortunately, Mr. Reeve continued to stay fairly active despite his paralysis, but a funny thing began to happen. As he spoke and listened to many others, he noted that he began to see paralysis in people all around him. He saw people stuck in bad habits and bad decisions, unhealthy patterns and behaviors, living out of fear and finding themselves unable to change for the better. He concluded this, 
There are some people walking around with full use of their bodies, and they're more paralyzed than I am. You see, I think Mr. Reeves saw a glimpse of the paralysis of our culture, and he concluded that it goes deeper than skin and bones. It affects the strong and the weak alike. And this story, I think, leaves us with the uncomfortable notion that you and I may not be any more free than the paralytic of this gospel story. What we need most is a cure for our paralysis, and only Jesus can give us that. But you see, this cure is also costly. The ministry of Jesus is not just an empty proclamation of forgiveness, but it involves the process by which this forgiveness comes about. This gospel story, I think, points ahead to the cost of Jesus' ministry. Because we're told in the passage, look with me, that as Jesus proclaims forgiveness, he also perceives that there are those who are questioning in their hearts. Jesus seems to miraculously know that his opponents are thinking. They say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there are two things you need to understand contextually about this interaction. First, only God forgives sins. In Psalm 32 that we heard earlier in the confession, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's only God who has the authority to forgive people's sin. Second, you should know that forgiveness is not possible without sacrifice. Anyone who knows anything about the Jewish law of Jesus' time knows that there's no forgiveness of sins without a sacrifice. In the Jewish Bible that Jesus read, sin had its consequences. God can't simply overlook sin. Someone or something must pay the penalty. And in the Old Testament, when you offered up an animal in sacrifice, it was a way of saying, I understand that the consequences of my sin is death. but I don't want to die. The penalty of my sin is very serious, but let it be laid on the head of this animal instead. It was the way of things. Either you paid for your own sins and died, or you offered something else in your place, and you were forgiven. And when the scribes challenged Jesus, they are fundamentally asking two questions. Are you God? And where's the sacrifice? What a critically tense moment. Jesus is being accused of blasphemy and making himself out to be like God. Does he stutter? No. He takes right off. Not only does he validate this claim, but he calls himself the Son of Man. Son of Man. This is a reference to God's Holy One in the book of Daniel. The Son of Man is famously God's coming King who is described as equal in power and glory to God. He is the King who will rule and reign forever into eternity. What a statement! What a statement. He retorts, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And then he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In an astonishing fashion, this paralyzed man gets up, picks up his mat, and he goes home. I need to tell you that no one in the history of the world made the sorts of claims that Jesus does. He is either a blasphemer of the worst kind or he is God himself because no one says the sorts of things that Jesus says and then backs it up. These people are all amazed, some maybe even just as skeptical as you and I. They see Jesus heal this man with a word of his mouth and say, 
We've never seen anything like this. This man is forgiven of his sins and he is living, walking proof of it. Yet this forgiveness will come at a terrible cost. You see, these scribes are not wrong as they read and interpret the scriptures. They understand biblically that there is no forgiveness of sins without a sacrifice. A person is not forgiven simply because somebody says so. Another must taste death on their behalf. You see, they didn't understand what Jesus was about to do. The purpose of his ministry was to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, but the cost of his ministry was to carry it out. These scribes and Pharisees concluded as per Jewish law in Leviticus 24 that whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely, shall surely be put to death. They conspire against him and condemn him, and yet in doing so, Jesus' ministry is actually advanced. He's falsely accused, tried, beaten, bloodied, and hung on a Roman cross. And at the cross, these same scribes meet Jesus and mock him with these scathing words. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from his cross that we may see and believe. Do you hear that? They say, which is easier, to save others or to save yourself? Show us now, Son of Man, your authority on earth. But Jesus does not. The one robed in all majesty and power, the one who heals the sick, the blind, the lame, the mute, even who raises the dead, holds his place on the cross. And he does it for you and me. You see, the reason Jesus can forgive the sins of the paralytic is because Jesus takes his sin upon himself. He becomes the sacrifice that was needed. In a stunning reversal of fates, Jesus allows himself to be paralyzed, to be fastened to a Roman cross with iron nails for the sake of your sins and mine. Jesus heals our paralysis by being paralyzed for us. Friends, the forgiveness of your sins is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You must understand that the indignation that God feels every day against sin is poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross, that we may receive forgiveness. And now, lest you question in your hearts that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he proved it the same way. The one who was paralyzed in death and laid in the tomb rose from his bed on the third day and walked right out. the Apostle Paul, contemplating this great mystery, years later writes this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But, in fact, Christ has been raised. Therefore, my friends, know with all certainty that there is forgiveness in Jesus. Which is easier, to forgive sins or rise from the dead? I know not, but Christ has accomplished both. Well, what can we say about this story? How do we read this? How do we apply this? I think this story so beautifully foreshadows the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. He was paralyzed in death. He rose from the grave, and then he went home to be with his Father in heaven. And the scriptures tell us that he is right now in heaven, interceding for his people and his church, and he has sent his Spirit to help us continue this most important ministry that he has begun. What we must not do now is simply be amazed and do nothing. If you're here and you're not a believer, can I invite you to consider the paralysis of your heart and that of our culture? 
May I suggest that whatever afflictions or troubles you find yourself encountering in this life are signposts pointing to your need for a greater and better healing. The physical healing this man experiences is temporary because he will die. But the one who knows the gospel and has forgiveness of sins will never die. There's real, eternal healing in the gospel for you. My friends, it is too small a thing that you should want just health and happiness in this life alone. Desire more. Come to Jesus for forgiveness and life. If you're here and you're a Christian, oh, I invite you into the ministry of Jesus Christ. When you are joined to Jesus, his purpose becomes your purpose. And his desire from this passage is that you would do two things. Receive his forgiveness and share his forgiveness. First, receive his forgiveness. Believe that there are some of us here who may need to hear again that we're forgiven, even as we struggle with certain sins. Christian, you have been liberated from the powers of sin and darkness. They no longer shackle you. You are no longer paralyzed. The Lord has commanded you should walk with victory over sin. Don't you dare go back to lying in the dirt. You are seen, and you are loved, and you are forgiven. Sin has no hold over you anymore. Do not go back to these things any longer. The power and ability of the gospel has been given to you in Jesus Christ, but you must expend energy. You must strain every faith muscle in your body, and in the presence of Jesus Christ, you are commanded to get up. Know that you are forgiven, but know also that you have been freed. Second, would you share his forgiveness? Christian, would you share the gospel of forgiveness with your neighbors? You know the way to life. You must not withhold it from anyone. Like these four men, labor to bring your friends, your family, your co-workers to Jesus Christ. Pray for them, carry them, point them to their need for a greater and better healing. You two were once paralyzed by sin, but you have been healed. And just like the paralytic of this story, you are now on your way home to your eternal home in heaven. Christian author and radio host Joni Erickson Tada was once asked about her paralysis and its effect on her faith in life. She replied with these words, I hope in some way that I can take my wheelchair to heaven. And with my glorified body, I will stand up on resurrected legs. And I will be next to the Lord Jesus. And I will feel those nail prints in his hands, and I will say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it. Because he will recognize me from the inner sanctum of sharing and the fellowship of his sufferings. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right when you put me in it. There's a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think that I would ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And now, Lord Jesus, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. (laughs) Friends, the Lord loves his people. Men and women, your goal as you walk out of this broken, hurting shell of a world is that people would be amazed at what they see in your life, that they would be drawn to Jesus. It is the will of the Lord that people would look at the outcome of your life and the way you walk in this world, even with all your afflictions, and glorify God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. As you walk your way home into eternity, 
make it your goal that you would be a testimony, a living, walking, breathing testimony of the forgiving love of Jesus Christ who bought you and rescued you. Rise up and walk. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you've taken your paralysis on yourself. The way you've freed us from the many afflictions that we have, but a much greater affliction, that that we had to sin. We ask you that you would convict and convince us of this, that wherever we are in our journey of faith, that we would have cause to draw to you and find our healing with you. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. We have some time for questions now. Let me pull this up. It says, hi, we had a silly question of how they cut the hole in the roof and what the material of the roof was made for. Um, so if you look at two different gospel stories, you find that um, in, in some places the roof was actually uh, unroofed. The, the Greek in here is actually that the roof was basically taken off. Uh, these, are not, uh, these are not very weak structures. They're actually quite strong. And so they labored quite hard to do this. Uh, between two gospel stories, you find that the, um, the tiles were taken off in one story and that the, the roof was dug through in another story. And I think uh, this is just a different way of explaining to different audiences of this gospel what exactly was happening. So I hope that's helpful. Um, okay, lots of questions. Sorry, never mind. He is answering my question now. Okay, great. Fantastic. I'm glad. <laughs> is the man a paralytic because he sinned in the past or is the forgiveness of sins necessary first because the paralytic can be healed or do both go hand in hand? That is a great question. I think I think the healing that God offers in the gospel is not a question of if. It's not a question of if God will heal you, but when God will heal you. And we are promised in all our afflictions and in all the things that we struggle with that one day we will find full and greater healing with Jesus Christ when we have resurrected bodies. Um, so I don't think that, uh, that Jesus, Jesus contradicts somebody else at, at one point about when they ask him, uh, is, this man, uh, is this man afflicted or diseased because of his sin? I don't think that's the case. I don't think the, the Bible gives us that understanding at all. Uh, but it does point to a greater and better affliction that we need to be healed of. We have a quest, time for one more. Okay, uh, there's a, the word of encouragement there. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Well, why don't we pray and then uh, we can be done.